This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Um, I wanted to sort of uh, pitch uh, or present the work today in the context of the effects of stress because of the high burden that uh, mental illness has on young people. That is, as many as 40% of young people today experience a mental illness. The majority of these are related to anxiety and stress. And if we don't treat these early, they can go on to lead to chronic illness, both psychiatric as well as physical illness. So the questions that we've been asking in our laboratory over the years is uh, how are these early life experiences impacting emotional well-being and the underlying brain circuitry involved in that well-being. And ultimately, what we need to do is to use this information so that we can facilitate and enhance healthy brain development and also, uh, of course, well-being of young people, which is then going to be well-being of our society. But if we first take a, just a simplistic look at all the changes that are happening in postnatal development, what you'll see is that there is dramatic changes just in the number of synapses throughout the brain that develop regionally. So we see a proliferation and a subsequent pruning of these connections. Simultaneously, there are changes in neurochemicals and neurotrophins that are absolutely essential to development and learning. And with all these regional changes, it is co-occurring with uh, increased myelination throughout the brain, which is making the connection stronger. So we've been focused on all these dynamic changes and trying to understand with um, just one picture using human imaging and focusing on one circuitry that's really important for our ability to process emotional information, so emotion regulatory and emotional reactive processes. And during this time, During childhood and adolescence, there are major changes in the circuitry, and we think um, that they will um, are one pathway for us to seeing how early life experiences are reflected in them and how this continued development may also be a window of plasticity of sorts, um, where we may have the biggest change. Now, in human studies, one of the ways that we try to look at this uh, in these circuitries and the behaving human brain non-invasively is to use simple stimuli or cues that we present. So here are, here's an example of a cue with emotional information. We examine how these cues impact both brain and behavior. These cues can be positive, smiling faces, or negative, um, or uh, they can be neutral. But what we see is even if you were in the laboratory uh, performing this task, if we asked you just to press a button whenever you saw one of these cues, you would be significantly longer in detecting a threat cue, a fearful cue, than you would be to a neutral happy, as you see here. So we have a longer latency there. It's adaptive when we see cues that have some uncertainty or ambiguity. I don't think for a minute when I present this cue to you, that you are threatened by that. However, we learn over a lifetime when we see cues like this that there might be potential danger. And what's very important for us to understand is in this context, is it a threat? So if a bear were to come into the room, I might have an emotional response. 
But the circuitry is important if I saw a bear in a zoo to know that that bear in that situation, I would be safe because they were behind a, um, a cage or wire. So now, if we look at these responses and this um, change in our responses, depending on the potential threat of information in our environment, if we open up the brain and look inside, the areas that tend to be related to that delay in our approach behavior in such situations involve the amygdala and the prefrontal cortex. And hopefully what you note from this slide is that the amygdala, the more active it is, the slower you are to respond. The amygdala is very important in picking up the emotional significance of information in the environment and has been associated with emotional reactivity. In contrast, the prefrontal cortex, which has direct projections to the amygdala based on elegant animal work and more recent human work, that area is less active Um, when you're um, really slow to respond, and uh, the more active it is, the quicker you are. That is, you see a potential threat, you are able to understand in this particular situation with repeated presentations of it, get over yourself, all right already, nothing's going to happen to you. Now, I've just made a sort of claim that over time, nothing's going to happen to you. Well, let's look at that in the brain and what systems are absolutely essential for that. What's important when we look at, with those repeated presentations, how well you habituate to these cues is this inverse coupling between the prefrontal cortex and the amygdala in the circuitry. And this inverse coupling or negative uh, connectivity seems to be changing radically from childhood to adolescence. And it is when you are not able to habituate that response that is associated with heightened anxiety. So I just want you to focus on this quadrant for a moment. And basically, if you look over at the y-axis, that's amygdala habituation and it's a negative score. That means not only was there not a change in how active the amygdala was to these cues, but that it was actually sensitized and it was increasing over the course of the experiment. And that's related to the highest level of self-reported trade anxiety. Now, some of these pictures had a lot of data. And I think data, um, slides, and pictures are worth 100 or 1,000 words, but movies uh, might tell a, a simpler story. So this is an example of an individual who reports low anxiety, and they're being presented with these cues of potential threat. So you'll see there's bilateral activity in the amygdala with repeated presentations, But then it's like the system begins to return to baseline and it turns blue. That represents um, from the increase going back down to baseline. In contrast, when we look at an individual with high anxiety, we basically see a similar pattern at first with this um, bilateral activation of the amygdala, but then it stays up and it stays up and it stays up and it doesn't return to baseline. So it's that vigilant state of anticipation of threat and an uncertainty of what these cues potentially mean. So two different um, paths that we've taken in trying to understand these two very different neural signatures here is to look at differences in genetic factors that may explain this, but in the interest of the symposium today, also in the environment or experiences that we have. So how does early life stress impact the development of the circuitry. And we have used really an extreme example of early life 
uh, stress. It is um, an unfortunate but a natural occurring one, and that is children who grow up in the orphanage. Now, in the orphanage experience, all the orphanages vary, but there's always going to be some fragmented caregiving because of the high ratio of so many children to a single caregiver. So what we've been interested in is, as these children are adopted to families in the United States, we've been trying to understand how this dysregulation of their needs not being met, how there's not attunement in the child's needs with what the caregiver can actually provide to them, how that impacts their ability to regulate self, but particularly today I'll talk about how to regulate emotion. So again, we use these simple cues and we ask um, children who have been adopted from the orphanages as well as comparison group who have not been adopted, who live in the United States, they all have moved, uh, the adopted children have been here for at least two years to make sure they get acclimated um, to their new home and their new uh, culture and environment. And um, what we do is we present these cues of potential threat, but in the task we tell them, uh, you know, ignore these, try not to pay attention to them. And you find in the situations in which you have these cues relative to situations where you present a smiling face that the adopted children are much slower in anticipation of one of them occurring. So even if it's a neutral face on the screen, if they know they're about to see a threatening face, they're really hesitant to respond. But if it's to a happy face or smiling face, you don't see a difference between the two groups. Now this is paralleled in the brain by enhanced activity in the amygdala. And that's shown here on the left and the right side. Um, But I think what's important about these findings is first, this is greater activity in the children who are adopted from orphanages abroad relative to the comparison group. The area in blue is actually more active in the comparison group. This is a part of the brain that's important for attention regulation and emotion regulation. So one is being able to regulate their emotions and ignore, and the other is quite reactive, that group. But more importantly, when you see images like this and you have these neural signatures, it is how does that relate to their actual behavior when you get them outside of the scanner environment or the laboratory? And so we measured um, how uh, the behavior between caregivers and their adopted children when they had been separated briefly and then they were reunited. And we looked at the amount of eye contact they had with their caregiver when they were reunited. And basically we see that the more active the amygdala was, the less eye contact they had with the caregiver. Also, the less eye gaze they actually held uh, on the faces that they were presented in the experiment as well, too. Now, when we have natural occurring experiments such as this, um, we don't really have control on pre-existing conditions that may be there, genetic or environmental. So we've actually turned to use Uh, mouse models to try to see if we can control for the genetic and environmental um, confounds that might otherwise explain uh, what we're seeing. And so we borrowed paradigms uh, that have been developed by individuals like Regina Sullivan at NYU and also Tally Barham at UC Irvine to um, induce sort of a fragmented caregiving of a dam to her pups. And so I want to just show you those movies on the top is a dam where we've taken away the nesting material. Um, She has a little bit, but not sufficient. So she is running around. Oh, this is not in real time. (laughs) She's she's a little bit slower than that. 
So, so basically, I don't even know if you can see the control dam. So she has all the nesting material she needs, and she's spending the majority of her time grooming and um, feeding, nursing her pups. But you can see the mother above is trying to pull together the nesting material and sometimes her pups over to her corner for the nest. So basically, you're seeing this fragmented care um, because she can't attend to her pups when she's doing other things, which we thought might, in the slightest way, mimic some of the fragmented care that we see in the orphanages. And if you look within a two-hour period, uh, you see a significant difference in the amount of time that uh, the dam is spending with her litter relative to controls. But quite frankly, if you look across a 24-hour period, they're spending almost as much time with physical contact, but it's very fragmented in that contact. So there's not that attunement between the caregiver um, and and the pup. So then if we look at their ability to regulate their emotions, not the dam, but now her offspring who've been given this fragmented care, Basically, what we see in a paradigm in which we've trained them that a nozzle will lead to them having access to condensed milk, and mice love condensed milk. And so we put that nozzle in a novel cage with a bright light where there's potential threat for mice. And we see that when we put it there, there's a difference between those mice that grew up with the stress dam relative to the mice whose dam their mother was not stressed. And you don't see any difference in terms of how quickly they move to the nozzle in their home cage. And then if we look at the brain using CFOS activity as an index, we see heightened amygdala activity in this group relative to the controls. And so this gives us a bit more confidence that what we're seeing in the human data that I presented is not as much associated with maybe pre-existing conditions as it is with uh, the early life stress because these um, parallel quite nicely. Now with the mice, unlike our human children who are usually adopted by super parents, if you do nothing after that, you see that there's persistent effects of that early life stress so that they're still showing heightened amygdala uh, reactivity in adulthood even though there's continued development of the circuitry. Now, this persistent effect in these mice is somewhat reminiscent of uh, work that Nim Tottenham has uh, done at Columbia in collaboration with Dylan G., who's now a colleague of mine at Yale University. And she's actually shown that if you look at this frontal limbic circuitry, that there, may, uh, there appears to be something similar to a premature closing of a sensitive period of neural development of this circuit such that if you just look at healthy children, what I described before, there are drastic, significant changes from um, coupling between the prefrontal cortex and it becomes inverse or negatively related in adolescence. What we see in children who have grown up in the orphanage is you're already seeing those changes early. And so now Nim is trying to follow and see just how rigid does that make the individual when they go through adolescence, which is an even more stressful time of life and meeting so many challenges. And I just want to end with um, one more study, an area of work uh, that uh, Dr. Tottenham is following up on, and that is showing how important the caregiver is. And so in these experiments where we're showing these very simple stimuli 
in the scanner while we're taking pictures of the brain and watching how they perform games. If you simply put a picture of the face of the caregiver um, uh, along the screen where they're performing the task, and you can counterbalance that with a face of a stranger, she sees that that's associated with decreased activity in the amygdala. So it's a decrease in that emotional reactivity just by having that uh, parental cue present there. And also, there is an increase in the uh, or inverse coupling with the prefrontal cortex that is typical uh, more of adulthood, but we're seeing the parent has that ability to help regulate. So... I hope what I've um, shown you or illustrated is just one small set of experiments that are being performed where we can show that early life stress can lead to persistent changes in brain and behavior, particularly in terms of emotional uh, capacities. And it highlights, too, this last bit of work, the importance of having very early interventions and also the importance of the caregiver in helping to uh, develop a healthy brain and also in terms of enhancing emotional well-being uh, now and hopefully forward for that individual. So I just want to end uh, by thanking so many individuals who have come through my laboratory over the years, the majority of them fellows who are stellar stars now, um, and to also thank you for your attention. Um, I'm really delighted to uh, be able to participate in this wonderful symposium. Um, what I would like to tell you today is um, one particular aspect that is absolutely essential for uh, normal brain development, and that is to have proper parenting. Um, we've heard from the wonderful uh, talk from uh, BJ Casey right before me how important proper nurturing from caregivers is for a normal mental health of the infant that then um, become adult. And so um, the, the question we, we've, we've been very interested in is, what makes a parent a parent? Um, if you think about um, uh, parenting involve um, one, two, sometimes multiple adults um, that take care of an infant, the relationship is completely asymmetrical. Um, there is really a very helpless individual that requires a lot, a lot of care for a very, very long time. And so what makes parents be parents? Uh, it's, uh, I think, a very interesting uh, behavior, long-term behavior that has um, a lot of emotional components. And so um, this is a behavior also that is uh, displayed by many animal species. It is absolutely essential for the development of uh, and the survival of the species. So the idea is that there might be some genetically pre-programmed neural circuit in the brain, and what we're interested in is really trying to understand the neural basis. What are the specific neurons that are involved in the control of parenting behavior, in the display of parenting behavior, and when is it that this behavior actually goes wrong? And there are a number of circumstances in which the behavior goes wrong. One, this is one of, I think, one of the most um, uh, um, uh, outstanding, really uh, impressive or, or very um, surprising slide uh, relate to mental illness. That's the number of psychiatric hospitalization after childbirth. You can see uh, right at the time of childbirth this enormous peak in uh, uh, psychiatric hospitalization of women. And um, uh, these uh, are uh, patients that suffer from postpartum psychosis. Uh, this is very quite rare. Uh, it requires hospitalization because these women ha 
have obsessive thought about harming their, chi their children, and therefore uh, they require very intensive care. These uh, uh, very um, way less uh, severe form, uh, which is postpartum depression, that affect 10 to 20 percent of mothers and 5 to 10 percent of fathers uh, in the U.S., and these also come right after birth and result in an inability to uh, emotionally connect with children um, and, uh, in effect, uh, um, impaired parenting. Now, um, there are quite a number of uh, risk factors, stress, life circumstances, prior depression, and sensitivity to hormone changes. As it turns out, um, uh, right at birth, uh, there is an enormous change of hormonal levels um, in, in the young mother. You can see here progesterone, estrogen, uh, oxytocin, prolactin. There is really uh, an enormous and very sudden drop in hormone level. Some people call these hormonal cows. And um, women in particular that are sensitive to these hormone fluctuations um, have really uh, difficulty in coping with those changes. Um, so so how do we understand the positive and the negative regulation of parental behavior? Well, let's turn to animals. So in animals and, and human uh, as well, um, the primary caregiver is usually the mother. And in animals and in mammals in particular, this makes a lot of sense because in mammals, the mother um, uh, uh, nurture uh, the, the fetus, the embryo in utero for a long period of time, and then in, is involved in like so really involve enormous maternal resources in um, uh, uh, nurturing the infant, and therefore it makes sense that mom uh, uh, continue to nurture uh, the infant through parental behavior. What about males? Well, in most mammalian species, a very large uh, subset of mammalian species, uh, the males actually attack the infants, attack them sometimes uh, or very often actually kill them. And this infanticidal behavior has been widely observed in many, in many animal species. Um, and it has been, it is thought that this is actually an evol evolutionary driven uh, aggressive behavior of the males in order to uh, gain access to the females that are not accessible when they are nurturing their own infant. And interestingly, this is a behavior that is absent in monogamous species in which both the male and the female are nurturing their infant, and therefore there is not this conflict of access of the male to um, the female. Now, infant neglect and aggression is also occasionally um, displayed by stressed female. This is seen in animals as well as I mentioned in uh, postpartum depression and psychosis in humans. Now, we're not working with humans. We're not working with primates. We're working with mice. And in mice, there is, as in this uh, uh, animal species I mentioned, a very clear sexual dimorphism in um, the um, uh, behavior of animal, male and female, to infants. Females, even virgin females or sexually inexperienced females, uh, spontaneously take care of infants. They will be the, build a nest. They will leak and groom the pups, retrieve them to the nest, and huddle uh, around the infants. Virgin males, in contrast, will spontaneously attack infants, wound them, and, and kill them through infanticidal behavior. So very, uh, very different set of behavior. However, males are not always infanticidal. And in fact, uh, strikingly, males, after 
to mating with a female are no longer infanticidal. And uh, the video I would like to show you here is from, if you wish, a certified uh, infanticidal male. This male uh, attacked infants uh, three weeks earlier, and then we had that male mating with a female, and then we're testing the behavior of this male now with these, uh, these pups. And as you can see, the male has built a nest, and now is retrieving these pups one by one. And I should mention, by the way, that these are not the, the pups of that particular male. This behavior will be displayed towards any infant that is, um, uh, to which uh, they are exposed. So all the pups are now collected to the nest. And as you see, this is a really good dad. It's checking that it has not forgotten any, any pups. Okay. Nobody left. Good. <laughs> Let's go back to the nest and then take care of the pups. So this is a really fascinating switch in behavior that really indicates that even in infanticidal males, there is the ability for these males to be parental. So how is this happening? Well, evolutionary speaking, this is actually not that surprising. Because if you look at various animal species, insects, fish, amphibians, reptiles, birds and mammals, they are species in which the female is always the one handling um, the, uh, the progeny. You can see little eggs here and little larvae uh, over here. Here's a tadpole on the, on the back of that frog. But very similar species, genetically very similar, show animals in which there is biparental care. So both the male and the female handle uh, the nurturing of the progeny. And similarly, also very similar species genetically have the male that exclusively takes care of, of the progeny. For example, this uh, beetle here with the little eggs here, or this male amphibian with the tadpole, or here this fascinating monkey, the titi monkey, in which the male is actually providing exclusive care. Of, of the infant. So what's happening here? Well, in, um, in mice, uh, what's happening is that there's a dominant male that mates with the female and the female have a communal nest. This male is always parental. However, subordinate males that do not have access to the female um, are infanticidal, will tend to attack the male, kill the pups, and that in turn enable them to mate with the female, and at that time they become parental. Now from a, a neuroscience standpoint, this is fascinating, because what it shows is that the brain has actually two types of circuit. One driving infanticidal behavior that is displayed by virgin males, and one that drives parental behavior that is displayed by females and fathers. So the question we are very interested in is what are these neurons that control parenting and infanticidal behavior? And I would like to tell you today is how were we able to identify neurons that are necessary and sufficient to drive parenting behavior both in males and in females. And so what we use is um, a way to identify molecularly neurons that are active during a certain behavior. Behavior. And the idea is that when a neuron is firing action potential, they are also changing their gene expression. And in particular, they turn on a particular gene, a transcription factor called CFOS. And so if we have a female or a male interacting with pups, then the neurons that are involved in parenting will fire, 
and therefore they will express these genes CFOs. So if we look at the brain of parenting animal, both males and females, compared to infanticidal male, we find that there is a subpopulation of neurons in one particular area of the brain, in the hypothalamus, in an area called the medial preoptic area, in which you see this very dense collection of neurons that express these gene CFOs after the animal has interacted with pups, both males and females. So this is very interesting. It's actually not that surprising because already in the 50s, 60s, 70s, a number of groups uh, through lesion experiment have uh, shown that maternal behavior requires the function of the medial preoptic area. But what we really would like to know is which precisely, what precisely are the nature, the identity of these neurons that are CFOS positive. And in fact, this area, the medial preoptic area, uh, fulfills a lot of function. It's involved in mating behavior, thermal sensation, all sort of other function than just parenting. So knowing precisely and specifically which are the neurons that express CFOs is something that we really need to know if we want to understand the control of parenting behavior. So we tested a number of candidate genes, and we found to our delight one particular gene, the gene that um, encodes for the neuropeptide galanin as being very nicely co-expressed with CFOS when the animals are parenting. So interestingly, um, this, the number of galanin cells uh, in the medial preoptic area is identical in males and females, in virgin males and in virgin uh, male and, and mothers and fathers. In other words, these neurons are there in the male and the female brain, irrespective of whether these neurons are um, parenting or not. Now, galanin is a peptide expressed in many different areas. It has been involved in many different functions, such as nociception, sleep, thermoregulation, etc. So we don't know whether galanin has any role to do to play in parenting behavior. But the fact that we know one genetic marker gives us genetic tools. In other words, we are able to use a genetic line that expresses this enzyme called CRE. Uh, think about the Caesar, if you wish, that enable to activate uh, specific specific uh, molecular tool to manipulate the activity of neurons. And so um, the experiment that we've done is um, to inject a conditional toxin into the preoptic area of a galanin cream mouse. And what this does is that it enables us to, to kill specifically uh, this galanin neuron present in the medial preoptic area. No other neurons outside of the brain or within the MPOA, um, nothing else than these specific galanin-expressing cells are affected. What's happening when we test the behavior of females and fathers when we kill galanin neurons in the medial preoptic area? The effect is very striking. The ablation of um, these MPOA galanin neurons entirely abolishes both maternal and paternal behavior and actually elicits infanticide. So there seem to be a role of these neurons not only in driving parenting behavior, but actually uh, inhibiting infant-mediated aggression. Now we try the other experiment, a sufficiency experiment, which is if we now take an aggressive male and activate artificially galanin neurons in these uh, infanticidal males, what's happening? What's happening, and we perform this experiment using a technique called optogenetics that enable to um, express um, 
a light activated channel in the neurons and then using an optic fiber uh, to, to activate these cells. And what we find when we shine light and activate these galanine neurons is that uh, infanticidal males now are no longer infanticidal and instead display uh, paternal behavior. So what this shows is that these specific population of neurons are both necessary and sufficient for the control of parental behavior in both males and females. Now, um, the um, uh, parental behavior is a complex behavior, and what we'd like to do now is really to understand this behavior in mechanistic terms. So um, these uh, neurons, uh, as we've seen, are able to control parenting. Parenting means a lot of things, grooming, leaking, crouching, retrieving, nest building, and then inhibiting infanticidal behavior. But these neurons do all of this according, obviously, uh, to uh, the presence of an infant, but also according to uh, the physiological state. Um, male, for example, will either uh, trigger this behavior or not trigger this behavior according to whether they are fathers or not. And so what we would like to, uh, to understand is how are all these different displays being performed and, and what is the role of this environment in the activity of these neurons. And the first set of experiments that we've done is really try to understand whether these galanine neurons really are involved in all these different part of parenting. And so the experiment that I'm going to show you here is uh, what is called bulk imaging or volume imaging of these uh, galanine neurons. The idea is that these uh, neurons now are expressing um, a genetically encoded uh, indicator of neuronal activity. So these neurons are now going to emit fluorescence um, when they are active and only in this particular area. And what we're going to have, we have an optic probe that enables to visualize the entire Intensity of the signal. And so it's called bulk imaging because we don't have cellular resolution. In other words, we, we're looking at the activity of all these neurons together. And so what you see here is a female, and here a bunch of uh, pups over there. And um, uh, the animal has a, an optic fiber here, and what you can see here is uh, the, the level of calcium. And as the female uh, approaches the pups, you can see the level of calcium going up. And she's licking the, the pups, and indeed the level of um, calcium stays high. And then as she brings the pup to the nest and starts licking the pup, then the level of calcium is really uh, going up the roof. Interestingly, we found that all the parts composing parentic behavior involve this galanine neuron. So that's quite interesting. Now, I'm going to show you another video in which this female here has a very similar type of behavior, as you can see. She's grooming something, licking, and then she's going to bring that... Um, that thing to the nest, exactly as she has done with the pups. But as you can see here, the level of signal is completely flat. What's happening? Well, although the behavior looks very much like parenting behavior, actually, she's handling a fish cracker. So that's not the pup. <laughs> and in these circumstances, galanineons are totally silent. So again, although the behavior looks exactly the same, what's happening in the brain, the significance of uh, this behavior is completely different and involves uh, very different parts of the brain. So in summary, uh, we started by the idea that uh, 
parenting is an essential behavior and that uh, in different species it's displayed differently by males, by females, sometimes both, and that uh, we were really interested in going to the cellular and molecular basis of this behavior. And um, we found this really interesting system in a mouse in which animals are or are not parenting, and we found this fascinating uh, neuronal cell type, uh, these MPOA galanin neurons, that now really give us entry into how parenting behavior is controlled. What are the different regulations of these neurons? What are their sets of projection? What type of input do they receive? And how all of these changes in both during development, in males, in females, and during uh, 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 mental illness. And I would like to thank the people, the wonderful uh, collaborator in my lab who've performed this work. Thank you. I, I tend to get uh, unsolicited feedback, such that that should be a very short talk. Um, you know, isn't that a contradiction of terms? Uh, you mean they found one? Um, and there's like a, a book a month that sort of, you know, piles on and these unflattering portrayals. The, the primal team, that's actually not too bad, but mom, I hate you. Get out of my life. But first drop Cheryl and I up at the mall. Uh, now I know why tigers eat their youngs are right to the point. Yes, you, your teen is crazy. But with the technologies uh, um, uh, such as magnetic resonance imaging, um, we can, for the first time, look under the hood at the living, growing brain. And what we've found is that not only do teens you know, have brains, but, uh, <laughs> but they're, they're good brains. They're, 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 they're you know, as they should be. They're not broken. Um, and and I'd, I'd go so far as to say, if they weren't the way that they are, we wouldn't even be here. Um, and uh, evidence from that comes from a kind of an unlikely uh, source that I'll get to in a minute. So the teen brain is different than the brain of a child. It's different than the brain of an adult. It's not just halfway between. It's a, you know, kind of its own distinct um, entity. And it's been exquisitely forged by evolution to have certain features. Uh, behaviorally, the big three are increased risk-taking, increased sensation-seeking, and a move away from parents to peers. And I think these are really deeply rooted in our biology because it's not just humans. All social mammals have these three features. And so we're probably you know, fighting Mother Nature by trying to eliminate these. Um, uh, and this is always very speculative to argue these ways, but uh, one idea is that it helped us get out of the home which is a really irrational thing to do, right? Wow, I mean, people love us, they feed us, protect us, it's a good gig, right? Well, um, but it turns out it works better if we do. And we, uh, less inbreeding, it, it just sort of, you know, not, I think, morally right or wrong, it just works better if, if, um, if, if, if this happens. And, and so these features, they evolved at a time without firearms, without you know, high-speed motor vehicles, without designer drugs and stuff, so some of these issues are kind of this... Um, Stone Age brain and com computer age world aspect, but I think that these behaviors uh, um, have have virtues as well. Um, when I uh, was at the NIH, um, the Smithsonian Museum was sort of close. They had this exhibit, the Hall of Human Origins, um, which I, I really liked. It kind of uh, not particularly featured, a little uh, placard on the floor looked at the relationship between brain size and climate change. And the last big increase in brain size, 500, 800,000 years ago. But what I thought was intriguing was that what correlated was the change in climate, not the degree. 
So before saying this, I thought, yeah, it got really cold. You had to be super smart just to stay alive long enough to get food and reproduce. And, but this is subtly different. That Everybody in this room had ancestors whose brains were good at adaptation. Uh, and we're, we're really good at it in terms of, of uh, even compared to our quite close, genetically close, rather than the Neanderthals or tall, Neanderthals. Um, <laughs> I'll pause. We can edit that later. <laughs> um, but, yeah. Um, and there's a, we can tell an enormous amount from teeth and fossilized teeth. It's actually redundant. Everybody's teeth right now are fossils, um, calcified um, cells. But it, they work like trees, so they have rings. So tree rings, you can, this was a wet year, a good year of growth. The, the rings are wider. And across many different species, the rings get closer and closer as you mature. The rings stop, stop, and you're done growing, and you're done maturing. And so um, when you find these fossilized teeth, if you find a fossilized Neanderthal tooth of a 12-year-old and then check the rest of the cave, he's going to be with his children, not his parents. And this is often portrayed as surprisingly rapid growth in the Neanderthals. But I think that's the wrong way to look at it. What's surprising is our protracted growth. We're the outliers, by far, it's one of the most distinctive things about us. And it, even across like crows and, and uh, many other species, the longer you're under protection of your parent, the more complicated your food gathering, your communication, you know, problem solving. Crows are actually really smart as an example, but similar crows um, in size and stuff that don't have this protective maturation don't have those abilities as well. I mean, it doesn't work to just keep your kids at home until they're 40. I don't think, on an individual basis, it doesn't work. But it's an intriguing trade-off, I think, that we keep options open. We keep our brains changeable, see what the environment's going to be like. We can live on the North Pole. We can live on the equator. everywhere. We can even live in outer space for a little while with technologies that our brains have developed. And so this is a good thing, I think, in terms of uh, this ability to keep options open for a long time. But it's really being put to the test with the, the, the digital revolution. And, and this is, just in my you know, short career, it's a game changer. Um, the way that, that we interact with, like we're doing at this moment, with ones and zeros, and, and the, uh, the lights, the projector, this, you know, it's, it's changed everything. It's changed the way that we learn, and um, great you know, content that's uh, on the internet. I mean, the greatest minds on the planet a click away you know, for free. Um, it's just it's amazing. It's magical. The way that we play and the way that we interact with each other. And, and so I've been fascinated by this interaction in terms of the you know, biology of, of this changeability and um, the technologies that have um, you know, taken over in, in a sense of of uh, almost 11 hours a day of screen time, and 30% of that time more than, more than one device. And so the usual question is, is it good or bad? Or, you know, and that's the wrong question, right? It's, it's almost any interesting question is, it depends, in terms of in what ways, it, and what, how it depends, and what it depends upon. But I think that this is um, a, an opportunity in terms of to... Um, Influence uh, adolescence. One of the, the tragedies of my uh, profession is that it's almost a 10 year gap between onset of illness and treatment. It, it's, it's, we, we need to do better. And I think perhaps the technologies can help us get there in terms of 
by monitoring things like social media activity, maybe even just movement, GPS data, harnessing these technologies in an ethically appropriate way to help us recognize mental illness so that we can intervene while the brain is still more changeable. And so a lot of the you know the debates around this that there's it's just not natural, right? We evolved to talk to each other, to be with each other, share smiles and touches and everything, and now we're looking at screens for a big part of the day. Um, but a counter argument to that is you know, reading's not natural either. Reading's only about 5,200 years old. So most humanity, nobody read. So, so I don't think that by itself is, is a good argument. It, it kind of makes the point that the whole aspect of this is the changeability. 10,000 years ago, hunting, gathering berries, that's the same brain in terms of, that's a blink of an eye in evolutionary terms. But, but our brains are amazing. We can adapt. You know, a lot of us spend a lot of our day with written symbols, you know, words, um, and, that. and that's so different than you know, what our ancestors did. And, and so my career has basically been this in terms of trying to understand this plasticity in terms of how to uh, optimize the good and you know, minimize the bad. Um, and this kind of, how do you help people with mental illness is the fundamental question. And so the kind of that notion of like, what do we know? How do we know what we know? What don't we know? Why don't we know that? But you know, my first assumption is the brain's involved, right? I hope so. If it's like a spleen or something, I'm going to feel like a complete fool down the road. But, so I, but I think you know, that's a good, it's a reasonable assumption. Um, and, and Professor Jernigan began this journey. BJ and I started uh, together at NIH following you know, down that path of looking at um, the brain and how the brain changes in both typical development and in illnesses. It's a kind of a non-creative start of design, actually, but scan kids um, you know, when they're young and follow them um, as they go through life, see how they're doing at school, at home, uh, um, see um, what sort of influences uh, are on the brain for good or ill. And um, at, the, at the NH, we, we did about 10,000 uh, scans, about half the kids healthy, half the kids um, with different illnesses. And what we found were... were uh, it's nuanced, but like the brain doesn't mature by getting bigger and bigger. By first grade, it's already 93% of adult size. Uh, it matures by becoming more connected within itself and more specialized. And this idea of um, being more connected, um, there's many ways you can approach this, but white matter is one of them. So this insulating material that you get 1% to 2% more of um, in the fourth or fifth decade, the brain... Um, is able to communicate amongst itself faster. It's not very subtle. It's like a 3,000-fold increase in, in bandwidth. It, I think, um, underlies a lot of the remarkable behaviors that we can do. But it, it's not just a matter of, of maximizing speed. It's all about the timing and, and the cells that fire together, wire together, the meaning, all the information's in, in these patterns. Um, but more and more, we're understanding that that's the progression. If we look at different parts of the brain, like letters of the alphabet, as we go from uh, an infant to child, latency, uh, teenagers, emerging adulthood, that these letters become words, the words become sentences, the sentences, you know, paragraphs, metaphorically. 
And, and this all goes up in, in adolescence. The brain, almost no matter how you measure it, whether molecular, um, EEG, blood flow, um, it's just, you know, it get, becomes more connected. And this is a, a kind of a fresh look in terms of this idea of graph theory networks. It gives us a whole new look. So for something like schizophrenia, before we'd be like, is this chunk bigger or smaller or different um, shape or size? But looking at the, the same MRI scan, the same data, and looking at how it's interconnected, then we can discern old from young, healthy from ill, because um, they're very not, not perfectly, but it's really exciting for, for someone like me. I can't do the math, but to be a, a consumer of it in terms of that, um, you know, by looking at this connectivity, it gives us a, a whole new uh, perspective on these illnesses. The other process is the gray matter process, and the one-two punch is overproduce and then war, or fight it out. So it's, it's how almost all complexity in nature arises. Uh, it's the engine of evolution. Overproduce, something non-random selection, um, and it has great you know, potential. So it, it's, it's constantly ongoing. It's not like you only overproduce during childhood and only prune during adolescence, but that we see this upside-down U type of curve where, where as we specialize, the brain actually becomes um, smaller. So after around 10, 11, 12, your brain doesn't get bigger, it gets smaller, but leaner, meaner, more specialized based on um, what you're demanding of it. But, but it's not all um, parts equal. The prefrontal cortex involved in controlling impulses, long-range planning, it's particularly late to, to settle down, some, you know, 25 to 30. Um, and that combined with the hormonally activated, puberty-activated limbic system, the passions of words, this, this imbalance creates a lot of the um, specialness of you know, teen behavior um, aspects. But again, this is how it should be. Um, if the prefrontal cortex is already you know, done, like 11 or 12 and stuff, then we wouldn't be as adaptable. And so I think this is the, the tension or the trade-off. The other um, place to start in terms of that, these illnesses happen at different times. And not perfectly, there's always variation, but Alzheimer's doesn't happen when you're three, you know, autism doesn't start when you're 60, that, that characteristically certain illnesses tend to emerge at, at certain ages. And that's, that's puzzling. You know, why is that? In terms of, and when you start looking at this, um, so much happens in adolescence. Not a lot, most. It's up to 75%. And I, I still don't know the answer. That's been for 25 years. I went like, Why? Because the early answer was, oh, teenagers are stressful. It's a stressful time of life. You know, kids have their parents killed in front of them. Or they're starving to death. They're in war, 20 countries. Enormous stresses. Right? But they don't get schizophrenia. And so that never you know, rang true. And I still don't know. I don't know the answer to this. You know, why, why do things happen when they do? Um, and so just you know, one example is for schizophrenia. All of the findings you see in adult schizophrenia, you could predict, what if typical teen changes went too far? It's not causal. They already had schizophrenia. But it's sort of, so far without, um, without exception in terms of both the MRI changes but also the molecular changes. And so it's, it's just this point, it's intriguing. It doesn't help me help families with schizophrenia. Uh, but I think these are the kind of clues that we're starting to understand. So in this specialization process 
in typical development, it's about 7% from ages 12 to 17. In schizophrenia, 28%. So it's not subtle, you know, fourfold difference. Um, and so understanding the typical development, I think, is key. But about half of what I deal with as an adult isn't an illness. Right? Pregnancy is not an illness. But it's a big deal. Relationships, car accidents, incarceration, you know, life decisions. This happens during adolescence. And, and it's, it's frustrating, you know, as a physician, it's like there's no insurance, you know, forums to check in terms of for these very real issues um, that aren't an illness. And this kind of notion is the glass half empty or half full. Because this changeability could be a great opportunity, making it even more tragic that we aren't recognizing the illnesses when they occur. And, and my final sort of analogy is to use Michelangelo in terms of, this is a very famous painting of his that, that by design, it should look like a brain, uh, the cross-section of the brain. He, 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 no, he, yeah, it, it was, he wrote about it himself and stuff, and it's sometimes called the original synapse, you know, the, sorry, <laughs> neuroscience humor. Um, but, but, it, but it's not like that. It, it's, it's much more like his other, his other expression of art, of sculpting. You know, we start with this you know, block of marble and life experiences. So then we eliminate parts. So we might be born with different chunks of marble, different sizes from genetics. You know, different. But within each, if we, if we knew what we were doing, if we could guide this process, you know, we, there's masterpieces. And, and you know, I think almost everybody. And we don't know, very, we don't know what we're doing yet very well. And it's like most of the illnesses emerging, less than 1.5% of the funding has been adolescents. Until, you know, finally, now, we, we have this project um, that for the first time is going to really do this right. Um, 11, 12,000 you know, kids, 19 sites across the country to understand what matters. How does the brain grow in health and illness? looking at um, you know, everything we can think of, frankly, in terms of, of influences on this. Um, I'm going to brag for San Diego a bit in terms of uh, there's these 19 sites across the country, but the coordinating center for the quantitative core and the um, neuropsych core and the coordinating all the centers are both here in San Diego as well. What a good deal for us you know, in terms of the opportunities to, to try to understand you know, what matters in teens' lives. And so the technologies is, is a big part of it. How, how can we get a better sense of internal and external environments with the sensors, with, with um, devices they're already using, already wearing? Because this is the crossroads, and right, you know, this is where people you know, make big decisions about their direction in life. And there's this kind of notion that teens are messed up and they're misguided and stuff, and it's, and it's dangerous. And I, I feel bad because I've... Uh, uh, <laughs> oh, I, I don't know. People don't do anything. But you know, this is, this is you know, the crossroads. Um, and what happens is even teens themselves buy into this. Right? And like stereotype threat and stuff, if you think that you're you know, not capable and stuff like that, it matters. Most teens do well. You know, they'll get through this. They'll do well. But I think we do a disservice by, by you know, selling them short. And, and I think that... You know, we really need to recognize the huge upsides of this. 
much more than the downsides, that if we can figure out what we're doing, what matters, we can really make a big difference. Thanks. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.